This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This interest that I've been developing in the last year or so in uh, foreign policy in Southeast Asia as it pertains to proliferation concerns led me to look more closely at Indonesia because uh, Indonesia has a very substantial nuclear research capacity, has an interest in nuclear energy, and uh, has a very strong reputation as uh, a country that abides by relevant international agreements, treaties, norms. Uh, and in that sense, it doesn't enter into most international debates about proliferation risk because Indonesia is generally perceived as not a risk. I don't want to necessarily question that today, but began to wonder more about the um, impact of monetization on foreign policy. What happens in Indonesia as more and more people have a role in policy making of all kinds? Uh, let's start out with the current controversy, and just in the last several weeks. Uh, this is uh, a picture of. Does anyone know who's in the picture here? Who's who? <coughs> It's uh, Mr. Sutarjo, I think. Sutarjo, Sutarjo, from the PDIP party, right? He's a so that means he's a vice chairman of the House of Representatives. Uh, on the far right there, Zain al Ma'arif. Oh, well, Zain al Ma'arif is in the middle. Right, okay. in the middle. That's right. And he's from? Uh, I think he's from the Partei Bintang Reformasi. And on the far right, with the, uh, the big head, that's George Bush. Uh, and in the middle is a goat. And in fact, it's a live goat. Okay. A live goat. And the initials are SBY, right? That is the initials of the president of Indonesia. Okay, so these two legislators, leaders of the House of Representatives, are accepting the president of a goat with something around its neck. They're being led around by George Bush. The, this is, a, and then of course, there are demonstrators denouncing Indonesia's support for a recent resolution of the UN Security Council. The U.S. Security Council uh, unanimously passed a resolution which essentially uh, intensified pressure on Iran to comply with earlier resolutions and uh, threatens further sanctions. Indonesia, earlier this year, became, uh, gained a non-permanent seat on the U.S. Security Council. And Indonesia joined the obviously was unanimous, uh, unanimously supported resolution. Indonesia supported that resolution. The response has been overwhelming. Massive, very large protests, not just in Jakarta, but in cities around the country. And as you can see, the House of Representatives, uh, leaders of the House of Representatives, in fact, have gladly joined in uh, efforts to uh, criticize the government. And the most important thing down here is what I note under the impact statement is this is the first time since Indonesia has democratized that a foreign policy issue has become the dominant political issue, a dominant issue in Indonesian politics. And not just that, but it is an important issue, right? It is an issue of global security implications. And it's not just an issue that Indonesian politicians have raised and bandied about a bit. This is an issue that they have, that a majority of legislators have signed a petition to use what is known as hak interpolasi, the right of interpolation, which is essentially the right to compel testimony by the president to explain, to give account to the legislature for why he has adopted a particular policy. Why is he supporting this? So we've got a couple of things happening here. First, it's major foreign policy. It's a foreign policy has become the most important domestic political issue. A majority of the House is backing what is essentially an extreme measure in Indonesian politics. Sort of a parliamentary, for many political scientists, the sort of a parliamentary aspect of Indonesia's presidential system. This is, this is new, it's different, and I think in, both in terms of its, uh, the support it's receiving in Indonesian politics and in terms of the, the nature of the issue for global security, it's important. This is the controversy, and um, I'd like to sort of unravel some of this and figure out why it happened. I just um, 
because if I start describing, tracing a long line of events, Don will cut me off and ask me where I'm going. Um, I thought I'd put this up front here. Uh, all Wisconsin PhDs learn to do this. Uh, one of my jobs at the Naval Postgraduate School now is to approve all thesis proposals in my department, and they all do this too. Uh, I look at this in the following way here. I think it, there's, there's a domestic tension that is clearly that has clearly emerged by the by the very definition of the problem here. The president is backing a particular policy as represented by their vote of the UN Security Council. The, the, domestic, the legislators are backing a different, they wanted to see a different outcome. Divergent views. Uh, how do we account for this? And how does it matter? Let's say that the national government is representing, uh, the national government perceives Indonesia's interests somewhat differently. They see that Indonesia, in their view, has a national interest in upholding international norms that pertain to how nuclear energy is used. They see some, uh, you know, they attach a great deal of importance to Indonesia being seen as a good citizen in the international community. The legislators, on the other hand, don't appreciate this interest. It's not something that they think about. They're unfamiliar with the whole international system of regulating nuclear energy. Uh, they have much more pressing interests, interests in getting reelected, in uh, garnering support for themselves in any way possible. And if you know much about the Indonesian political system, you know that it's highly fragmented, that parties are struggling to broaden their bases of power and to gain public support. One of the ways that has become, become quite common is to show some concern for issues in the Muslim world, whether it's Palestinians uh, in the occupied territories, uh, or it's for Iran, perceived as a dominant Muslim country. Uh, also, the United States is incredibly unpopular in Indonesia, not necessarily Americans. For those of you who are American, that's the way I typically try to describe Indonesia to Americans who are going there, that you may find that the United States is incredibly unpopular. American power is despised, but Americans generally are very well received. Basically, very toxical until you've been there and figured it out for yourself. So there's a divergent perception of uh, Indonesia's interests and a different sense of what uh, priorities should be. Complicating this, I think, is Iranian diplomacy. That's one of the things I want to trace out here today. I think, uh, just to foreshadow, what I'm going to say in a bit. Iranian, Iranian diplomats have found that the Indonesian government, in the shape of the foreign ministry, in the shape of the president, the president is captain for the most part, are committed to protecting the right of all countries to develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. But they haven't been able to obtain any support. Iran has not been able to obtain any support from Indonesia's president or its foreign minister, which is what they care most about, for anything that sounds like support for military uses of nuclear energy. If you read any statement that you read by the foreign minister or from the president or from any other official source, it would be very clear in stating that Indonesia only supports peaceful use of nuclear energy. Now, getting very, making little headway on this front, I see over the past year and a half to two years a very conscious effort by the Iranian um, government, its diplomats, its legislators, to reach out to Indonesian civil society to cultivate support among opinion leaders and legislators and to play on some of these um, concerns in, that Indonesian legislators have. And so, the highlight here is. Democratization is creating opportunities. We think of democratization as reshaping the domestic arena, making it possible for new groups to take part in shaping the foreign policy. But the democratization also creates new opportunities for foreign countries, for foreign groups in general, to cultivate support. We have we've become accustomed, I think, over the last several decades of thinking about how the United States, through USAID and other policies, attempts to reshape Indonesian civil society and take for granted that foreign donors are trying to do this in ways that we generally think of as positive, promoting you know, religious tolerance, interfaith dialogue, uh, reform of civic education, and so forth, legal reform. But there are, the range of possibility is much greater. So you think of 
there's been two different levels uh, of action that are made possible by democratization. Now let's look at first at the problem from the executive branch's perspective, perspective say of the president and the foreign minister. And just highlight a few key points here. One is to, to be aware that Indonesia has the oldest and largest nuclear research program in Southeast Asia. You can't hold a candle to Japan or Iran or Russia or India or Pakistan. But if you look at Southeast Asia, there, are, uh, there is a very long-standing research program stretches back over 40 years. This is important because it means there are generations of Indonesians who are trained, technically trained, to operate nuclear reactors, to conduct nuclear research, but also not just trained in that sense, but socialized. They travel around the globe interacting with other scientists, with other policymakers. They know very well what is expected of people who manage these sorts of um, institutions. Uh, and Indonesia has three nuclear research reactors at this point. Um, one outside of Jakarta, one in Anvil, and one in Jakarta. Uh, so there's two levels to this. One is just a level of technical knowledge. The other is an awareness, a, a social awareness, a process, through a process of socialization, awareness of the norms and the importance of the various norms that govern uh, nuclear, nuclear energy, nuclear research. This long-standing program is uh, well known as being compliant with the Non-Proliferation Treaty and IAEA safeguards. Just last December, Mohamed al Baradai, for the head of the IAEA, was in Jakarta and gave a long uh, presentation on, of course, nuclear energy, the IAEA's role. And he specifically noted Indonesia's, A, Indonesia's compliance with all of the relevant safeguards, and B, the IAEA's uh, programs in Indonesia and its willingness to continue those programs to support Indonesia's efforts to develop its own nuclear power industry. And that brings me here. Indonesia has a seat also on the IAEA Board of Governors, which gives it some uh, presence you know, in a decision-making body, some influence globally. And it's an, it's an influence that Indonesia has exercised in a way that other members of the IAEA would describe as responsible. Dating back to 2004, Indonesia developed a new national energy uh, policy. And this national energy policy includes support for the development of a nuclear energy industry. Up until now, Indonesia has nuclear research reactors, no nuclear energy uh, generation capacity. Uh, I believe it's the South Korean government which supplied most of the resources uh, to conduct a three-year study of Indonesia's nuclear energy needs, uh, which means that sometime around this, sometime this year we should expect to see it, the results of that. Um, but the executive branch has been pushing hard for this. Uh, there have been numerous seminars, numerous uh, efforts to solicit uh, the interest of various countries to help Indonesia develop nuclear power industry. Uh, there's, there is a plan in place, whether it's executed or not, is uh, another thing. Because it not only will be very expensive, but it's something that there's strong executive branch support for, and uh, so far very little social opposition to. Those of you who know Indonesia might recall back in the 1990s during the late Suharto era, Suharto's government was pushing this the original version of this plan to site a nuclear reactor in central Java in a volcanic region. And one of the principal sources of opposition at that time was Nahdlatul Lama, which said, you can't locate one of these kinds of things in the heartland of Nahdlatul Lama being the large Islamic organization, uh, with whatever, tens of millions of emotional members at least. Um, and very recently, NU's current political form, PKB, declared itself to be a green party. Two cents, of course, green color of Islam, green color of the environment. And so far, they haven't come up, they haven't brought foreign policy and domestic energy policy together. The point here is the government has clear interests in this area. Um, upholding maintaining Indonesia's status as a responsible player internationally, a responsible nuclear player internationally, is 
vital to its ability to pursue a, pro uh, a program of developing nuclear energy. Okay. They, people in the foreign ministry, uh, people in, who deal with energy or nuclear uh, research, people in the executive branch are well aware that if they want to implement this energy policy, they have to continue to behave quote unquote responsibly at the global level. Because if they don't, that will provide an opportunity for the great powers, the permanent five or others, to put pressure on them to obstruct their policy. It's an idea that's coming out of the executive branch, it's not an idea coming out of the legislative branch. So you see there's a little bit of background to the interest I described earlier. Uh, let's look then more specifically at Iran and what the Indonesian government government's position has been at a few critical junctures over the past year or so. Um, first of all, back in February of last year, the IAEA Board of Governors had a vote to consider whether Iran had responded, responded appropriately to earlier um, resolutions passed by the IAEA, and if not, to decide whether or not to refer Iran to the U.S. Security Council obviously treating the matter much more seriously and needing to potentially more severe consequences for Iraq. There are roughly 35 members. I think about 26 voted in favor. Four or five abstained, four or five opposed. Indonesia joined a small group of countries that abstained, including Belarus, Ukraine, South Africa, perhaps another, uh, I can't recall. An unusual collection of countries. And just throw those names out there like Belarus, South Africa, and Indonesia. So it's not some sort of Islamic power bloc that is dead set against any efforts to contain Iran. There's something else happening there. So that South Africa is probably the most famous case of a country that developed nuclear weapons and then rolled back. It has a nuclear power industry, perceives itself as a leader of the non aligned movement like Indonesia. Mike, if I could ask, yeah. what was sure. the domestic reaction? Uh, I'm going to get to that in the oh, next slide. Okay. I'm going to cover the executive side okay. first and then give okay. you the, then give okay. you the blowback. Uh, so that's one piece. A few months later, Ahmadinejad came to Indonesia. I'll get into more details about this later, but he was in Indonesia. He tried to steal the show in many cases uh, from the president of Indonesia, which didn't take all that kind into that, I think, but I'll let the foreign minister characterize that rather than me do it. Um, but what I want to emphasize here is that even after Indonesia took the step of putting itself in the minority, abstaining from a vote that was going to be uh, an overwhelming vote in favor of referring to the U.S. Security Council, no matter what Ahmadinejad did in Indonesia, no matter what preparations were made, we might he stayed in Indonesia for about five days, unlike George Bush, and come and stay for a few hours, you know. Um, no matter what he did, the Indonesian government would say, we support Iran and Indonesia and any other countries' right to peaceful use of nuclear energy. That's all I could get out of Just uh, <clears throat> a short while ago, last month, when Indonesia now found itself the seat at the U.S. Security Council, it wasn't entirely happy with the idea that there was a resolution that was going to be passed to um, strengthen sanctions on Iran. And Indonesia found itself not only sitting on the U.N. Security Council, but sitting on the U.N. Security Council chaired by who? South Africa. Now, depending on who you, whose account of all of this you read, uh, I lean toward the interpretation that South Africa took the lead in proposing some amendments to essentially weaken the Security Council resolution that was developed by the Permanent Five plus Germany. Weaken in the sense of delay, get granting Iran more time to comply with the previous resolution, 1737. Uh, and Indonesia got one thing out of it, I think, that it did want, which is to say that there was a reference in there to the problem of nuclear, uh, well, I get the words exactly, the wording exactly wrong, but the exact wording wrong, but to the problem of nuclear weapons throughout the Middle East, which is essentially a reference to Israel's well-known possession of nuclear capacity, nuclear weapons capacity. So Indonesia joined a small group of countries, basically it was South Africa, Indonesia, and Qatar. And 
proposed some amendments. But in the end, Indonesia went along. It was a unanimous resolution. This is, again, the Indonesian government refusing to take a hard-line approach, uh, hard-line approach against Iran, and throwing in its lot more or less with the majority. What happens? What happened in each of these terms back home in the domestic arena? Uh, and again, I'll, exp I'll expand on each of these points subsequently, but shortly after Indonesia abstained from the IAEA vote, the leadership of the DPR, the House of Representatives, uh, announced that they regret that Indonesia only abstained. They wanted Indonesia to actively oppose. A year ago, this, this sentence was already strong in the legislature. That's important to note because it shapes, if we go back to slide, why would Indonesia have taken any steps to try to weaken this, uh, the resolution at the UN last month? They've, been, they've become increasingly aware of the domestic support for Iraq and opposition to any efforts to impose sanctions on Iran. Uh, the welcome that legislators accorded and civil society leaders accorded to Ahmadinejad exceeded, I think, the enthusiasm with which the Indonesian government received him. Uh, you might recall Ahmadinejad going out and speaking you know, uh, at, I think it was at the University of Indonesia. Um, consider the difference in the way he was received in America, anyway, and how Lisa Rice was received and how George Bush was received. It, it's, it's, the difference is striking. Uh, Ahmadinejad didn't need a special helipad built so that he could fly you know, all the way to Bogor without having to trouble himself with seeing you know, actual Indonesians. Ahmadinejad gladly got out and sought support, pumped up support for himself. Uh, then, of course, in the lead up to the current resolution, the, current, the most recent uh, vote at the U.S. Security Council, the legislature and civil society were clearly pressing the government. Um, to oppose the resolution, with the resolution well known, Indonesian civil society leaders, the Indonesian legislature felt well versed in the diplomatic action taking place at the Security Council, and then subsequently they approved this interpolation motion um, that approved a petition that they will then later have to vote on if they actually want the president to come and testify personally. The important point here is that there's an iterated process of tit-for-tat that's going on here, and positions have become sharper and clearer over the course of the last 12 to 18 months. Why? I mean, this is really, I mean, for me, I, I think the puzzle that needs to be explained is the why they diverge so sharply on this issue. Uh, and why, in the end, even if they diverge sharply on this issue, why has the legislature taken such a strong stand on it? Why, they, they don't, even on many other issues, threaten a motion, uh, to, it's an act of interpolation, you know, to call um, the president to testify. I, that's why I uh, bring us back to the, the point I made at the beginning. I think there's uh, an issue of Iranian diplomacy, effectiveness of Iranian diplomacy, and also the changing nature of public opinion, which itself is a result, in part, of successful Iranian diplomacy. Back up a moment and <coughs> think about the effect that democratization has had on Indo-Iranian, Indonesian-Iranian relations. Um, so you have someone from the consulate. Look at the foreign ministry's own account of bilateral relations with Iraq. Always, as every, every country does, you know, looks for the the happy thing that happened for, uh, furthest in the past. Indonesia established ties with Iran back in 1950 or something like that. That was good. But there's this great big gap, as, if, as though nothing happened. And there are paragraphs to describe how nicely Indonesia and Iran got along, but without any specifics at all, no mention of any exchanges. And this goes on all the way up until the 1990s, when Suharto and Rasajani Rasa exchanged visits. And this didn't lead to very much, although it did lead, I believe, to the late 1990s, um, to the formation of the D8, the developing eight countries, which is a group of predominantly Muslim countries. But what's most notable is how common visits have become since democratization. 
And Kustur has been to Tehran. Megawati has been to Tehran. SBY has not been yet, but Ahmadinejad has been to Indonesia. There's a quickening of ties. And note, it's interesting here, I think, that there's presidential leadership involved here. This is, this is all coming from the top. In, in part reflects the presidential politician's view that they know what society is thinking just the way legislative leaders know. It's good to make a stop in Iran. It's an important Muslim country. Show some interest in these issues. But at the same time, it indicates that some of the divergence that I highlighted earlier might not be as great as it appears. Um, both, both legislators and executives may be playing the, to the domestic political audience, one slightly more than the other. A couple of things about uh, about what happened at each of these turns. I mean, as far as I can tell, essentially nothing big came out of Gustur's visit to Tehran, though I stand willing to be corrected on that. Megawati's visit was very interesting. She went to Iran in early 2004 for one of the D8 summits. Uh, not something that Americans spend much time thinking about. But something interesting happened there. It was one of those little diplomatic exchanges um, that led up to that and followed. Indonesia, alphabetically, comes before Iran. Indonesia should, in 2004, have hosted the D8 summit. But Indonesia, in 2003, reached an agreement with Iran to swap places. Because Indonesian leaders knew that 2004 was an election year. And 2004 was going to be a very complicated time to host some sort of meeting like this. And who knew who would actually be president at that point? People were fairly confident, I think, that Megawaki would still be president. But it was a difficult time. So Indonesia and Iran reached an agreement to swap places. Iran hosted the meeting in 2004. Then that Indonesia would do it in 2006. Okay. Think of what happened in, 2000, in the interim there. Khatami was out in Iran, and Ahmadinejad was in. So who Indonesia would be hosting turned out to be a little bit different. Uh, but Megawati's visit to Iran led to a large number of agreements to cooperate. Mainly commitments, nothing serious, nothing that seems to have been put into practice. But the government itself was open, both governments were open to signing various agreements in trade uh, and various economic issues mainly, but also some sharing of intelligence, they say, although I don't know about that. As I said, they got very, not, the president's lead, national leaders laid the foundation for Indonesian-Iranian relations to warm up a bit. And that started back roughly 2000, 2000 but with Megawati and uh, her government trying to hear what to do about the D8 summit, there was more politicking diplomat diplomacy taking place in 2003. 2004, 2004, 2005, this is when the international community begins to step up its pressure on Iran. After Ahmadinejad becomes president, Iran's diplomacy takes another turn, and international pressure on Iran is stepped up another notch. And that happens in 2005. From late 2005 into... The, the, Iran's approach to Indonesia's legislators begins in late 2005. In, at that point, Iran extends an invitation to Indonesian... Iranian legislators extend an invitation to Indonesian legislators to come to Tehran for a visit early in 2006. Harmless enough, merits very little attention, certainly not in the international press. What happens is very interesting, though. It puts a lot of pressure on the Indonesian government. These guys go to Tehran right before and right during the IAEA's vote on whether or not to refer Iran to the UN Security Council. And so just before the legislators arrive in Tehran, Foreign Minister Wirayuga also arrives in Tehran to meet with the to meet with the Iranian government to discuss what the Indonesian government's position presumably really is, as opposed to what the Iranian government hopes it might be. And back in Jakarta, SBY meets with the foreign ministers of Iran, and then separately with the foreign ministers, or that part of that foreign minister, the ambassadors of the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. So that the 
inevitably this act of inviting, which seems very uh, innocuous back in late 2005, the act of inviting Indonesian legislators to pay a friendly visit to Tehran, turns out it puts a lot of pressure on the Indonesian government to begin to explain to everyone else what it's doing and whether it really will vote a particular way. And note what happens is, as this pressure on the government is building, this coincides with its decision to abstain from the vote to refer Iran to the IAEA. This is also, it, it, this needs to be explained and can be explained in a variety of ways. None of them, I think, are on their own convincing. It was at this point also becoming clear that Indonesia might be, might be selected as a not to a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council the following year. And in right at the tail end of 2005, um, the Indonesian ambassador in Tehran noted that he he was happy that Indo-Iran was going to support Indonesia's effort to get this seat on the UN Security Council. There's an awareness that if, you know, just as we, you can scratch my back and I can scratch your back, I can help you with your D8 summit problem if you help me with mine, there's an awareness at the executive branch level too that there are things that can be traded off diplomatically. How significant would it be for Indonesia to abstain when everybody knows that a vast majority of the votes are going to go in favor of referring Iran to the U.S. Security Council? Maybe not to, maybe it's just something that can be done diplomatically. But diplomacy is taking place at various levels. The most extreme statements and actions are coming from the legislators. And here you see in the picture at the lower level, the, Iranian, the Indonesians in Iran, and it looks like some of the same people you saw in the picture before with the goat, right? Uh, and this is Agamemnon Sonom. This persisted over 2006. There were two visits of Indonesian legislators to Iran. There were some visits of Iranians to Indonesia. There's also an interesting quotation from Agamemnon suggesting that the Iranians in fact paid for this visit. So that this was, this is evidence in my mind, if true, of the importance that Iran attaches to this. Now, uh, this is just a series of snapshots of indicating things that happened in early 2006 uh, that illustrate the kinds of things that Iran was doing. Uh, and we have the head of the MPR here reading very warmly the uh, president of Iran during his visit in May. Uh, a couple of months earlier, I think that is the, the um, Iranian ambassador to um, Indonesia with Din Shamsuddin, the leader of Muhammadiyah, one of the largest religious organizations, social religious organizations in Indonesia, um, who has very recently, in response to Indonesia's joining that unanimous uh, Security Council resolution, strongly criticized the government for doing that and said, why didn't we oppose it? We should have stood up and used our bebas active uh, foreign policy as strong and free and active independent foreign policy opposed to that. And at the top, you have uh, the Iranian Minister for Research visiting Iran's, or visiting Indonesia's nuclear research facilities uh, in Serpa, right outside of Jakarta. These are the sorts of activities that were taking place with great frequency throughout 2006. point that we tried to make up, up until this point is that Iran is actively courting support and that helps us to understand why the response was, in, in part, helps us to understand why the response has been as it has during the past month or so. Would Indonesian legislators be doing this just because some Iranians told them it was a good idea? Well, probably not. I mean, there's something else happening here. And um, this is the results of a, a poll conducted, a survey conducted uh, for the BBC uh, in countries around the world. Most of the um, surveys seem to have been done in late 2006, perhaps in early 2007. I think in the United States and in Indonesia, they were both done at the end of December 2006. And it shows you how <laughs> the favorable view of Iran is rising quite substantially. And in the course of uh, the past year, the favorable, the favorable view of the US has declined even more substantially. So that what this means in my mind is 
that legislators who are seeking to curry favor with the public, with potential voters, know that showing support for Iran is something that is likely to gain them support. And likewise, showing that you oppose the United States in any particular way is likely probably to win you even more votes and even more support. And so this is at least as much about opposing the United States as it is about supporting Iran. And confronting the president. Mike, on, on, sure. on, this is all, all fascinating, but you could use an even more dramatic uh, a data set from the Pew Charitable Trust, which, you know, it was 70% post 9-11 favoring America, and 18 months or, or 20 months later, 17%. And the uh, only reason I didn't do that was that I didn't have, I didn't care about updating that last part. I was hoping, and I, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because I was thinking that that has to show the same thing and it has to be even a longer time series, yeah. right? Yeah. I know about the earlier ones. I didn't know it's more dramatic. Thing. Yeah. Is there? Do you know if there's a recent? Um, are there equally recent data from them? You know, I haven't given a talk on Indonesia for a couple of years, so I'm, yeah. I, I'm not. I know the, the older stuff was it was clear. I was wondering if they had done something. It, it might have recovered by a little bit from the 17 percent, right. but not a lot. This, actually, I jump in on this yeah, one. Actually, there was a more recent one. It was post the tsunami reconstruction, right. and it, it was that actually, showed big, it was a big bump. Oh, that's right. right. That's right. right. It went from 17 to about 36, right. if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And then it's gone. And that's gone down. And if they thought you don't know if they followed up since then. That was my question to the person. Well, this is a, this BBC thing is more recent right. than yeah. Q's, right. as far as because I think that um, as far as U.S. policy goes, I mean that's a separate but related topic. <coughs> there was a there was a sense that tsunami relief was terrific and this had helped us turn the corner, and uh, then there was you know, there, the Mercy uh, hospital ship went off and traveled around Southeast Asia and helped people get his idea that let's do more of this humanitarian stuff and burnish our image in Southeast Asia. But what these data show is how short-lived that, in fact, is, I think. Um, okay, so that, I, mean, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. I have a couple of pictures to show you that might make you uh, laugh if we had lost attention. But um, the point is that if we wonder why there is this controversy, the controversy is brewing in part because democratization is creating opportunities that are being exploited, not just by um, Local, domestic politicians who think that they can curry favor with the public in a particular way, but it's also being exploited by uh, foreign leaders, foreign politicians who see an opportunity to bolster their own position by reaching out to civil society leaders. And I'll close with a picture, but also with an what I think is an irony, which is the United States has, for a long time, tried to foster the development of civil society in Indonesia in order to promote democratization. But once Indonesia has become democratic, it seems to me that our foreign policy then has been focused almost exclusively on our dealings with the executive branch of government rather than with the legislators, in spite of the fact that we know that if you want to have a successful foreign policy in Washington, you've got to come into Washington and meet with the Congress. And I just, here's the American, the traditional American view. Uh, even Tom Hole's fairly liberal editorialist, you know, here's, Iran is over here on the insane side, and then the rest of the world is on the same side. Uh, and nothing really good can come from Iran. And two slides, and for the tape I'll describe. This one is interesting, from the Indonesian perspective. It comes from Kompas, right? That newspaper that Muslim groups remind us is run by Catholics. Right. And another, which is uh, from Swaramangarwan, which, as many will remind us, is run by Protestants, um, which, if you can't see it from all the way back there, this is the UN Security Council in Indonesia. And this great big nasty shark with lots of teeth, very angry, going off to get Iran. And here's this nuclear Iran. So here comes, you know, this, this angry UN Security Council is about to swallow something that it uh, probably doesn't plan on swallowing all the rules of bad things to it. Um, the, just to capture sort of that public opinion sense. Let me start off by <clears throat> um, sidestepping your argument and sort of attacking it laterally from the side. Uh, not attacking it exactly, but one of the things that strikes me is that the, the critical intervening variable here is democracy, democratization. What about the argument that this is not about 
uh, procedure, about democracy as a procedure. It's about identity. It's about Islam. It's about the Muslim world. I mean, it's quite striking that you have a uh, dramatically Shia case on the one hand uh, in Iran as compared with the Sunni um, majority in Indonesia, and that this therefore perhaps represents you know, some kind of notion that we are all Muslims and we face this challenge uh, from the West. We have been abused, I mean, you know the argument, right? The humiliation of history and so forth, and now it's time to recover. Now, it's possible that that counter-argument is simply untenable, given the empirical evidence, which I have not looked at. Feel free to, to say that that's the case, and I'll put it aside. But that would be another angle. Identity case. argument. Yeah, an identity right. argument. I think what was most striking to me, and it was just accidental, her reading newspapers and talking to what is doing in Iran. What is uh, Sukhato doing in Iran? I mean, this isn't, these are not the leaders of Indonesia's Islamic parties. Right. Uh, and what is most striking to me about all of this is that it's been a cross-section. If you look at the delegations of leaders who've gone to Iran, Abulaksono led the delegation, went to Iran, they went and visited nuclear facilities. They declared that these were obviously only for peaceful use. Um, they hadn't been to the tents where the centrifuges are, but they're not nuclear trained anymore than I am to know what they are looking at. Uh, and then they came home and denounced their government for not voting uh, against that IAEA uh, resolution. Um, if you look then, you fast forward to this year, last month, only one party has not supported the interpolation motion, okay, and that's the president's party. And again, across section, 278 people have signed the petition. That's a slight majority of the House, and it represents. And that's why I, you know, so that means there were Golkar, there's Golkar, Golkar PDIP. Everybody's there. Now, and I think that means a couple. Of, it doesn't. It means at least, at the very least, that the most superficial argument that that identity politics is driving this. It's not true. But it could very well mean that uh, all of these politicians know that they'd like to curry, they'd like to gain the support of those so-called Muslim voters out there. Now, who are they? And I think that when you look at how, how widespread opposition to the United States is, it's pretty clear that that crosses religious divides. And in the end, I come back to nationalism, a sense of who and what Indonesia is. And look also, and it could broaden this out and consider a range of foreign policy actions um, that have been in the news recently, whether it has to do with Singapore and Singapore's refusal to sign an extradition treaty with Indonesia. You know, what, was the, what did the House say about that? Well, stop sand exports to Singapore. Right? Uh, this is a, a minor issue. There was a very large story in the Wall Street Journal last week with a map of Singapore showing how much larger it is than today than it was 30 years ago and highlighting where the sand comes from. Uh, there were other issues of a similar nature that have come up repeatedly, and the House has been taking a much more nationalist line, even vis-a-vis -vis Malaysia. Again, so there's, you know, whether it's religion or not, it's about who Indonesia is. Uh, what place it should have in the world. Fair enough. I'm persuaded about it. I withdraw the objection. But, but it's not so much an objection. I think it's a, it's a common approach. And I think that a lot of people, because of the war on terrorism, so to speak, right, have tended to view Indonesia through religious lenses and interpret its politics that way, which is helpful in some respects. But there's a whole lot more going on there, which might be obscured by those lenses. I actually interpreted your uh, your challenge is, is not one of uh, mutual exclusivity here on, on causality, right? I mean, I think uh, these these religious uh, trends are pretty dramatic. I mean, the the uh, the reception that uh, Akhmadinejad received at uh, uh, University of Indonesia was that of a rock star. Right. Uh, that yes. he never would have gotten had he not been the guy to uh, to poke fingers in the eye of uh, Uncle Sam. Uh, and 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 that 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 resonates so much. And I, one thing that Don alluded to here, I mean, the, it's not as if uh, Iranians and and, um, 
and uh, uh, Indonesians are just such natural brothers in the, 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 the uh, 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 Shia-Sunni divide. Uh, but, but that's uh, uh, this, uh, this, this pan-Islam uh, thing uh, tra transcends that because of the larger dynamics. And that's why you get these bumps on tsunami, but they aren't sustainable because the, the larger uh, dynamics are awful. But, uh, yeah. I mean, that refers to my very anthropological leanings. I remember before I saw you in Bali, there were a couple of things that happened at the beginning of the summer of 1989. One was the Tiananmen massacre. The other was the death of Ayatollah Khomeini. And I, was in, I arrived in Indonesia right about the time both of those happened. And I went much longer without knowing about the Tiananmen massacre, Tiananmen massacre than I did without knowing that the Ayatollah had passed away. And that's what people were talking about. And you know, I was in a rather kind of area. People weren't all that overtly religious, and many of them were quite outspoken in their admiration for him. Eric is right, but uh, they're not mutually exclusive. But I guess I'm I'm persuaded that this is not about Islamism. This is about nationalism. I mean, when um, Mahathir came to Jakarta, right, when he was prime minister. There was another very comparable embarrassment, charismatic, you know, uh, sort of touching all of those romantic chords about, you know, here we are, non-aligned, you know, sticking it to the West, mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that he was himself, you know, a Muslim, it had really nothing to do with, with religion. Uh, I, I'm not saying that's irrelevant, but I'm saying I think it's we, we, the nationalist argument is, is more clearly foregrounded. But it my, does, though, here, let's one before you move on, it does have a very important role to play in public opinion. And it, when you read the statements of people like Din Xiang Xuting, right, it's very clear that Islam is a reason for solidarity. And there's a reason why we have to have solidarity with the Iranian people and support for the Iranian government. And it's similar to the reason why we have to have solidarity with Palestinians. And you know, that's, yeah. so we're working at different levels. And politicians are aware of their need to get reelected. They're also aware of some other broader nationalist interests that they themselves have and that Islam sometimes plays into right there. So, but I'd like to now press the argument in a different direction and see how you respond. I mean, it is logically possible to imagine that the the backlash against SDY and in support of Ahmadinejad could carry over, perhaps it's too early to say clearly whether this is happening, into an argument that Indonesia itself should consider the Iranian route, whatever that is. I mean, for example, you know, is it fair to say that Iran now has a nuclear weapons capacity, um, you know, stockpile? I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, this is an intelligence but one can easily imagine, especially Dean Sanchez, more than anyone that I can think of offhand who's involved in this, thinking how wonderful to kind of generate this, this ambiguity. Uh, look at all the attention you're attracting. Look at the bargaining power. So you don't actually have to come out in favor of Indonesia really having nuclear weapons uh, in order to kind of reap the benefits uh, of this. Now, maybe it's not a benefit to be you know, condemned by the UN Security Council, right. but, but again, going back to the nationalist argument, in the discourse, as you have read it, right. is there any sort of subtext that says, you know, we too ought to think about possibly having nuclear weapons? None. Yet. But, that doesn't mean it, it won't, none that I've seen. Right. Uh, well, probably not fair. But I, I think there are two, well, a couple of things that could happen. One is that, simply by taking this position, if you are in the other camp that says, we cannot trust Iran, then any support for them to continue with, if you think that everything is for peaceful use and you support measures that enable them to do that, then if in fact the weapons program, this yeah. stance is adding that. Um, Iran has asked to engage in nuclear cooperation with Indonesia, the Indonesian government has not refused, but doesn't seem like something's gone very far. Um, well, that's important because if that kind of cooperation is agreed, keep in mind that there's a wide range of Indonesians, and some may be strong supporters of the government's position, and others may not be strong supporters of the government's position. 
And once a nuclear energy policy uh, or program is implemented, that is going to mean there's a large number of people coming into the country, a large number of people going out of the country. And you know, from a from people who think about risk, that's one of the things they would think about. But in terms of any Indonesian supporting the acquisition of nuclear weapons, I don't see that at all. I think that's that's at this point highly unlikely. One, let me just highlight something that I think that's positive that could come out of this. I mean, democracy is a, involves a process of give and take. And what the House of Representatives has forced on the government is some effort to explain the stance. And what I highlighted at the outset was divergent interests between legislature and the, the executive. And I think the executive has gotten too far out on this issue without explaining to the House. And so what happened shortly after the vote was a presidential effort to stem the tide that was pushing the court into Malasi. Okay. How did, what form did that take? Well, Hassan Wirayuda had to go and talk to the Foreign Affairs Commission at the House, and he had to explain. Why did we do this? It's very clear. It's a whole statement, very logical. I mean, probably as logical and as well presented as he presents Indonesia's position internationally, but not really ever presented that way to Indonesian representatives. Once he had their attention, they were all demanding the president come talk to them. He could communicate that this is why we do what we do. You have to understand. They also gathered all the leaders of these parties together at a uh, nice hotel in South Jakarta and tried to explain to them what happened and they still said they wouldn't rescind the interpolation motion. But the government, you know, one of the things that can happen as democracy develops is that not only does the society, the legislature get more, legislature get more involved in defining foreign policy, but the executive gets more involved in explaining yeah. that foreign policy to the legislature as well. That could be a positive thing to come out of this. And I, Any other comments? Yeah. Um, oh, that was a great presentation. It, was, it, it kind of reminded me of what's going on in America now in terms of there being a rift between the president and the, and the legislative branch and actually legislators going to places like Syria. And, yeah, but it's kind of right, an opposite right, situation right. in the sense that yeah. you have a, a president that's seen as sticking it to the international community right. and a legislator. <laughs> That's supposed to be more responsible, right? right, that kind right, of. right. So I guess my question in the Indonesian context is, how come you assume that the that the executive or the president is going to be sort of more responsible or sort of norm following? And yeah, you know, in the past there have been sort of the hell with your aid right. types of presidents. Right. And so why isn't SBA taking a more confrontational stand against? Uh, why not? Uh, I think as things stand now, the executive branch is the one that is led by people who appreciate the utility and the value of the position that Indonesia occupies in the international community. It's not a position you can't demonstrate in five minutes or a month or a year the same thing that you can demonstrate by adhering to a set of norms and principles and safeguards over a period of decades. And so if the government wants to pursue a nuclear energy policy, then it knows its people are very well aware of what they're going to need to do with the IAEA, and they're, they're very well aware of what sort of reputation they need to maintain and want to undermine that. Legislators, I think, are very much unaware of this as they're unaware of so many other things. Um, there's there's a learning process going on, and that's I think probably the best thing to come out of this, in my perspective, from a you know, sort of democratization perspective, is the explanation that the legislature is getting. It's a shame they had to do what they did in order to get that explanation, but in a sense, once they had issued such strident demands, and they themselves had blown the issue up so big, they could hardly ignore the foreign minister. Right? They could hardly ignore the government when the government came and said, okay, if you're interested, because suddenly they had, they're the ones that would make issues as big as they had. Right? I mean, for, for symmetry purposes, it would be interesting to do this same analysis in Tehran. Right. Because there you have potentially a very different situation in which there is, I think, maybe sotto voce, but perhaps mounting 
concern mm -hmm. on the part of potential opposition politicians inside Iran to what Ahmadinejad is doing. I mean, that's a fascinating kind of reversal, which brings in democracy in quotation marks, you know, and another guise. The, the other comment I would make is that, and getting back to Ahito's point, that the distinction you draw between the executive adhering to international norms and then the nationalist or, you know, lowercase Islamists in the legislature taking a different tack may be in the process of being eroded by significant changes in the international environment where we have the release of funds in Macau as a concrete consequence, maybe minor in historical time, but still a tangible consequence of Pyongyang's negotiation. So, you know, can we say that it was a mistake for Pyongyang uh, to do what it did? No, we can't. I don't think we can. Certainly it got cognitive respect, so to speak, and the story still is underway, but there are benefits from being able to have some kind of card that you either are or are not, or are in the middle of perhaps playing, that is the nuclear card. With regard to India, I mean, the American position, in terms of any kind of consistency, in my judgment, has crumbled as a consequence of the special case that was allocated to India. For strictly geopolitical reasons, it seems to me that, you know, this is a check against China. And it's got nothing to do with international norms, nothing, nothing at all. And Iran, in that context, suggests a continuing erosion of this increasingly fictive kind of abstraction that is being trotted out by Wirayuda when he goes to try to persuade the legislators. Of right. he, has a, he has a much more difficult job to, to yeah. notice, you know, if you want to call the American office and say, your policy is inconsistent, lots of people's lots of policies are inconsistent, where does that leave Indonesia? It can then, Indonesia or any other country, it can then either become a country like Iran right, or Israel, some other country that we aren't going to play by those rules. Or it can be like India and you know, tighten its ties, I think, with the United States. I don't know how, where, where else does it fit? Because what it's going, what, if it wants to pursue any further development of nuclear energy, it's going to need outside funding and outside expertise. Well, I've, I've got just two, uh, two comments. One is on topic and the other takes us off topic, but it might be sort of interesting to, to think about. The, the on topic is to, to what extent might Indonesian public opinion to the sanctions uh, placed on, on Iran simply be a, 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 a rational reaction to the history of economic sanctions that we've seen largely an ineffective technique to, uh, to move people along a path that the international community wants. Having lived in Pakistan when five layers of sanctions were, were applied, I could see things weren't going to come out the way that the U.S. wanted at that, right. at that time. So that's on topic. My off-topic uh, comment is the triangulation of, of Indonesia with Iran and Saudi Arabia. How is that all playing out? Ahmadinejad was recently in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he's 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 playing a lot of a lot of uh, cards here. Right. Uh, Saudi is is very involved in Indonesia. It's, you know, much better than than I do with with uh, uh, mm -hmm. readings available on the market and, and really trying to penetrate on a doctrinal level mm -hmm. uh, in, in in Indonesia. And you know, to what extent might Indonesia become a playing grounds for Iran and, and uh, uh, Saudi? Now, Saudi has a huge comparative advantage in, yeah, in, in religious history terms, but uh, Iran's doing a great job on the political level. Right. I mean, I think you know, Iran's opportunity at the at the lower at the other level. I don't call it the cultural level. It's obviously limited by the appeal of Shiaism in Indonesia. I mean, how far are you going to get with that? It's not not too far. Yeah. Um, yeah and at the same time, it's done quite a good job of playing at the level that it can play. And this goes to your other question about what would be interesting to look at this from Tehran's perspective, because I have no idea exactly what's driving this policy, and it could be many different things. Clearly, Iran needs international support as much as it can get. Uh, but is it concerned to counter Saudi influence in Southeast Asia in some respect? I don't know. Also, I should say that you know, Iran is not Iran's approach to Indonesia has been quite persistent uh, over the past year and a half to two years, but it also has been active in places like Malaysia and Thailand as well, with, as far as I can tell, less response.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.